Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thriller writer Mick Herron is the heir to John le Carre, the author of the wildly acclaimed Slough House espionage novels. The TV adaptation, named after the first in the series, Slow Horses, is one of the best shows around. No mean feat in our golden age of TV drama. It stars Gary Oldman as Heron's Falstaffian protagonist, Jackson Lamb. The latest Slough House novel is Bad Actors, and it's just come out in paperback. Mick sat down with Hannah McInnes live on stage a couple of weeks ago to tell us more. Perhaps a good place to start is to tell us about Slough House itself. You know, what it is and who they are, people know that, but how the concept came to you, very first, first came to you. Uh, well, I used to work not very far from here. I used to uh, get off the tube. I was commuting in from Oxford, and I would get on the tube at Paddington and get off at Barbican Station and walk down towards Old Street, which was um, near where my office was. And um, Slough House is a building that I used to walk past every day on my way to and, and from work. And I don't really know why it particularly... Well, I do now. At the time, I didn't know why it had um, caught my imagination, but um, I decided that this was a place I was going to initially just set a scene in, in this building. But in fact, I've been there ever since, really. That was like 2008. <laughs> so, you know, 15 years on, I'm still there. Did you go in? I've never been in, no. Um, it's, a, it's a black door set between two um, premises. In the books, I've made them a, a Chinese restaurant, which it isn't really, and uh, a news agents, which I think it is. There's a couple of other shops there. One is a, is a computer repair shop, which is almost constantly shuttered. I mean, I don't want to say money laundering, but it strikes me <laughs> that some, something dodgy is going on there. It's no, um, but the, the door itself was what caught my attention. And, um, and I realised just a couple of years ago, I was asked to write a piece for The Guardian. They, back then, they had a, um, a regular series, the, um, the Streets I Grew Up On, or, or something like that. And it, it was only sitting down to write that. I talked to my mum quite a bit before writing that piece. And it was only then that I realised that the house I mostly grew up in, I lived in from when I was about, just before I was two, until I was eight, eight or nine. That was the front door of the house. It was, um, the, we lived above my dad's shop. He was an optician and a busy road in Newcastle. And it had a, a black door just like that between, you know, sort of retail places. And uh, it had never occurred to me that that's what I was doing when I, you know, when I saw this door and started to weave stories going on behind it. I have to say that they've painted it recently. It's, now, it's no, longer, no longer black. And a couple of years ago, um, uh, the premises were up for lease. This isn't the house I grew up in, this is, you know, Slough House. Um, and uh, one of my, somebody at the publishers, it was my, um, my then publicist, now editor, got onto um, one of those real estate websites and looked around. It's gorgeous inside, it really is. It's all nice and clean and you know, oh. bit of pristine walls and everything. Nothing like I've uh, painted it God, at all. Imagine yeah. if you could have bought it. <laughs> it's so <laughs> fantastic. What done with it. <laughs> and written from inside there. Um, you know, you're, you're described. In a lot of places, of course, it's on, on the cover too. Britain's finest living thriller writer, um, the king of the spy thriller. And um, you have these heron addicts. I'm sure many of them are here today. Um, I, I wonder what you well, put it down to, the sort of enormous popularity of, of your writing. 
I, I don't question it. I just keep my fingers crossed and hope that it, <laughs> that it continues. And it was a very slow burn uh, coming, the, the readership that um, the books have found in, in recent years. And a lot of that is down to the, um, uh, the change of publisher I underwent uh, some years ago. Prior to that, I didn't have much of a readership at all, which was, didn't bother me very much, to be honest. I mean, I, by the time I started writing this series, I'd grown used to the idea that um, I was uh, just going to be writing for my own self, my own fulfillment. And I was quite happy doing that. But uh, a young man called, called Mark Richards came along. He was um, newly appointed at John Murray to uh, revivify their, their fiction list, which had been uh, neglected, I think, over in recent years. I mean, they used to have Jane Austen, but she's not writing so much anymore. <laughs> um, and, and Mark was very determined that, um, that, that he could sell these books, this series. So I was quite happy for him to, to try it. And he published um, the first two books. At this point, I'd written the third book, but it hadn't been published yet. Um, so he had the first two books to play with, and he published them in paperback. And they sank like a stone. I mean, nobody paid any attention to them at all, which was pretty much what I'd been expecting. I think they sold between them a little under 600 copies. But Mark doesn't take no for an answer. I mean, as far as he was concerned, he liked them, and therefore everybody else ought to like them too. So he just kept publishing them. And they went through about three or four reissues. And then they started, people started to pick them up. Those the covers, really, let's face it. Once they had <laughs> the right covers, people started to buy them and read them. So, um, do, do you think that sort of, I guess, rocky beginning, in a sense, spurred you on? Do you think it would have gone a different way if you hadn't had that sort of... I suppose, adversity to sort of deal I, with. I think it would have gone very wrong if uh, the first book had been very successful. Mm. Um, I think that having several years writing in anonymity, more or less, yeah. was, was a good, good way to go. I preferred it that way, um, I think. And it left me grounded, I, I believe. I'm very sure that by the time you know the books as they started to get a readership i knew what i was doing with them and i had the tone of voice that i wanted to use for them and the characters were up and running except for the ones that are no longer up and running <laughs> uh, i'm using the word sidelined for that at the moment is my, my new euphemism some characters have been sidelined but uh, others were were, um, were were established and um and i think if you know i was doing that without any kind of feedback as it were that was just what I felt was right for the books, so I've been able to continue in that same vein. When Mark took over, he said, you just carry on doing what you're doing. He didn't, which I think is, is quite common these days for publishers taking on, or taking on an author to say, well, you've got to do social media, you've got to be on Facebook, you've got to do Twitter, and I don't do any of that. And he was quite happy with that. He just said, no, you, you write the books and we'll do everything else. And it, um, it, yeah, it all worked out very nicely. You, don't, you still don't do any of that? I was looking I, for I don't you. do any of that, know. no, no. <laughs> Tempted? No, not remotely, no. <laughs> when you read about people on Twitter these days, it's mostly about them leaving it and feeling very relieved <laughs> that they're no longer on it. But, uh, um, it's mm. interesting because, of course, you, you wrote these and, and the central characters, um, a, a lot of it is around people who, in your words, have... Well, actually, it's a bit rude to say that the, what you called them in, a, in an interview, previous interview. I'm going to say messed up in one way or another. <laughs> um, and you say it, you've said, I don't want to write about happy, successful, efficient people. I don't think people want to read about that and that people want to read about and you want to write about people who've, who've failed and, and had frustrations. Why is that? It's more interesting for a start. That's funny, we were talking about Wendy Cope earlier. I was... I was um, was with her briefly last night. She has a lovely poem about being boring and happiness 
is about being boring. <laughs> you know, it's, it's about doing the same things with the, same, with the one other person that you want to be with and just, you know, the even tenor of your way and all the rest of it. Excitements uh, tend to be traumatic one way or another. And, um, and success also is, is just less interesting to me to write about. People who are messed up, to use the polite version, or um, have more depth to them, I think. I mean, there's more to, to mine out. If you're writing about people who are happy, who cares, you know? <laughs> Readers don't want to read about it. People want to be happy. They don't want to read about people being happy. They want to read about people having accidents and, you know, and, and getting into trouble. So um, it, it seemed more obvious to me that these were the, you know, the interesting people. Yeah, and I, I feel like it's also tapping into a... I mean, of course, throughout literature, there have been failures and, and, you know, people have written about people who've failed and gone through adversity, but I feel like at the moment, um, there is generally more of a sense that people want to read about people who are vulnerable, who are failing. You know, it, it's, it's, a, it's certainly a genre at the moment and a topic of discussion that piques people's interest, just, you know, not... To, to read about people who have gone through adversity and show their vulnerabilities? I think so, yes. And also, I mean, given that a lot of what I write is about um, incompetence and people who aren't, aren't very good. Uh, and I also coincidentally write about politics quite a lot. Well, we're going to definitely... We I will think, come to that. I think that. We're, we're in not an era where these things just <laughs> mesh together quite nicely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, so bad actors. We'll, we'll come back to... We'll, well, bad actors will come back to politics. I say we'll come back to politics. I mean, we're going to politics as soon as I say the word bad actors. But it is the latest in the series. Tell us the premise in, in your words bef before we explore it a little, in a little bit more depth. Uh, well, I suppose there are two, two parts to that. The premise for the, for the plot was I was quite interested at the time in the whole business of non-elected special advisors more or less running the country. And so that was what was driving the, the plot uh, at that time. But what drove the book for me, um, largely because I'm involved in writing a series, I like to set up challenges to myself before I start and, and decide that I'm going to do something that I've not done before. And um, this book contains, it's in three sections rather than two. Usually I have books set in two sections. That's not the challenge, that was easy, and that was just adding another one. Yeah. <laughs> But the middle section is all one unbroken scene. It's one piece of prose. There are no gaps in it at all. And the the uh, central consciousness, the point of view, passes around about a couple of dozen times, probably from one character to yeah. the other. And it's something that's very interesting to do as a writer. Um, a and if you do it right, then readers aren't even going to notice that you're mm. doing it, which is, to me, the, um, the, the, the great fun of that. So for me, the challenge was that, um, but the, the plot was driven by that particular kind of political concern uh, that I had at the time. It's really interesting to hear you talk about that. So the reader doesn't necessarily notice, but it gives it an extraordinary energy and sense of perspective zipping around between all of the characters. Is well, it difficult to do that? It, it's... I suppose all, all writing is kind of difficult in different ways, but it's also fun in different ways. Yeah. So I didn't notice it as being particularly difficult. The, when I very, very occasionally do um, creative writing classes, one of the things that I tend to say about writing action scenes in particular is it's all in the cutting. You know, you stop and you move, you change to somebody else, and um, you build up all these little cliffhanger moments and you keep cutting away and then cutting back again yeah. and so on. So there's more white space on the page when you're doing yeah. action. It's all got to be done quite 
quickly. Um, so this was the exact opposite of that, and it was interesting to see whether I could generate suspense and have an action sequence which didn't cut away, which just kept yeah. on going throughout. So it was, it was fun to do. And um, tell us about bad actors as a title. I mean, it's not, a, it's not an unfamiliar phrase to you and to your work and um, to, to the novels, to the series, but why have you chosen bad actors as the title of this novel? It had been in my mind for a while, and it had been going to be a title for a previous book, um, but then I got distracted, and uh, that one became Slough House. By sheer chance, this book, Bad Actors, was released around about the same, in the same month that this first series of the TV <laughs> show started streaming. And I was left with having to confess to the fellow producers and indeed the cast that, uh, that I was going to call the new book Bad Actors. <laughs> and um, my, my partner took a series of photographs of me telling Gary Oldman what the new book was called. <laughs> and uh, we must use them one day because they're, they're, they're very funny. He, uh, he roared with laughter. He threw his head back and arms in the air. He's an actor, Mike. He is an actor. He might have <laughs> taken out a contract on me after I told him. But he laughed very heartily at the time. So uh, I've, throughout, I've, I've generally sewn um, a title for the next book, you know, in the, in the previous book. And, um, right. and that was, yeah, bad actors as a phrase had been in for a while. I didn't invent it, you know, I just picked it up somewhere. So we'll definitely come to the politics as central to, to this. But of course, there's always also, a, you know, a great deal revolving around the security services. And in terms of your research, how do you sort of cultivate such a attention to detail when it comes to the security services and how they operate? Sorry, the phrase, in terms of my research, always makes me, makes me smile. My research is I, I sit at home and I make stuff up. That's what I do. Um, I do. The only time I ever do research is for very small, practical issues. Um, right. I've never researched the intelligence services. Right. Um, one of the things about you know, the secret service is, is that they're secret. And you can make up anything you like. And... So long as it sounds reasonably plausible, people will think you know what you're talking about. And it's got me this far. Uh, but no, I don't have any um, insights, or I certainly don't have any kind of deep throat telling me uh, what's, what's what. <laughs> I wasn't no. necessarily imagining. So uh, what about... I'm going to imagine a similar answer when I ask you about the halls of Westminster, which also uh, you seem to have a great familiarity with the research into that. I, I'm, Sitting I'm, at home. I read the occasional newspaper. No, it, again, I don't, I don't have any um, sort of personal insight or anybody telling me stuff. I've met, you know, a number of people, politicians, and, and uh, occasionally people... Well, quite recently, this is... I haven't written anything since meeting them, but I, I recently met someone who was a former national security advisor. And that, he had some interesting things to say, but I'm not going to tell you what any of them are. <laughs> um, politicians... Just recently, I was, um, I was interviewed by Chris Patton, who, of course, was a member of um, Margaret Thatcher's cabinet. And a couple of years ago, I spent a very pleasant evening with William Waldegrave, who was also a member of uh, Margaret Thatcher's cabinet. Do you know, at the time, I wasn't a big fan. <laughs> Not a big fan of, of, um, uh, of Margaret Thatcher or the people um, who, uh, who served under her. But, you know, in retrospect, and compared to the dismal <laughs> shower we've got running the country these days, they look like beacons of integrity and veracity. 
Uh, I mean, so, yeah. I feel like I'm not sure about my next question now you've just said that. But you obviously choose to centre so much of it around politics that is very far from non-fiction. I mean, eerily familiar backdrop to the book. I was about to ask you how much of it is your own views on politics that we're meant to read into it. Um, well, I have tried in, in the books to give um, voice even to the, um, to the, to the bad actors um, when they're expressing their own views on, on politics, to allow them kind of to express their own, own views as freely and as unfiltered as I allow, you know, sort of other uh, people who might more reflect my own views to, to have their say. I don't think anybody comes away from the books in any great doubt as to what I feel about, say, Brexit, for instance. Uh, but certainly since, um, it, was, it was since 2016 that the books became more political because it became more apparent to me that the political backdrop as is was um, a good place to be writing about because, because as I say, I write about incompetence and, um, and stupidity. And there is just so much of this in, in public life at the moment that it seems a natural... You know, it just feeds into... So I don't have to satirise anything. I just say what's going on and people think it's funny, you know? <laughs> It sounds absurd, but it's, um, it's mostly true. So there's obviously an uncanny familiarity. You have a Prime Minister who you describe, a man you describe as made a vocation out of an avoidance of responsibility. Are, are we meant to sort of imagine that, or you just, yes, you want us I, to... I think we can draw our own <laughs> conclusions about that. <laughs> and his thing. special advisor, a disruptor, a homegrown Napoleon, nasty British and short, a scruffy dresser who carried a satchel rather than a briefcase, who felt every government needed a visionary unafraid to sow chaos. Um, why, this is um, Sparrow, so um, perhaps tell us about him, but, but why you were so interested in this character and the man you modelled him on. Well, you notice he's short. I mean, this is pure imagination coming as a river. Well, that's the disguise. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it was that situation, as I say, that, that interested me, that there are people who are unelected, who have been steering this country down some disastrous channels over the past few years. And um, it seems that they, there were no consequences for them. Uh, apart from, you know, they'll get, they'll get sacked from their jobs eventually, but everybody in politics does. And then they'll go off and, you know, be directors of one or another company and, and earn, a, earn a fortune. Uh, but there are no consequences for the things that they have done. And, you know, if, if the worst they're going to suffer is me sticking two fingers up at them, then, you know, they've got a very, very likely indeed, I would say. Mm. I love the fact that at one point... So you, um, they have, of course, very different names, until at one point, just suddenly it says, you didn't have to be Michael Gove to recognise an opportunity to put the knife in, so you just suddenly just abandoned, <laughs> abandoned the, um, the fictional names altogether. Yeah, my, my imagination let me down there. <laughs> um, yeah, apparently, if you, as I said, I'm, I'm not on, on Twitter myself, but again, it was Mark Richards, who was then my editor, um, said that uh, Michael Gove turned out to be a fan. He was, um, he was tweeting about the books. <laughs> And then I wrote London Rules and he stopped being a fan for some <laughs> strange reason. So there you go. I was, I was actually listening to that part and I had to stop. Did he just actually just use his name straight, straight away? Um, we've, we've talked about putting the, them onto, onto screen. And I just wonder when you're writing, do you and did you at the start or ha has this changed as you've, as you've gone along, imagine it being brought to life on screen? And if you do, does that have an impact on your writing? I, I did when I first introduced the character of Jackson Lamb. I made reference to, um, to Timothy Spall, 
And the reason I did this was simply, I'm not particularly good at, um, at descriptions of people. And I thought, if I did something like that, then that would do the job for me and people would stop, you know, sort of wondering what he looked like. I could just right. do it rather than make something up. I just said that. Um, the, I wish I hadn't, actually, in, in retrospect, I wish I hadn't. But for some years afterwards, I'd get emails from people saying, you know who would make a good Jackson Lamb? Timothy Spall would be a good Jackson Lamb. <laughs> I think, I told you that. Yes, you know? <laughs> uh, and then, of course, when, um, when Gary Oldman was cast, people were, um, were saying, oh, I think it should have been Timothy Spall. He'd have been Madman. The thing is that Timothy Spall at the time um, was, was not quite as, as lean and, um, and as, as well-maintained as he is now. He seems to have um, had something of a makeover. So um, Gary Oldman does a better Timothy Spall gone to seed <laughs> than Timothy Spall does now, I feel. Uh, I didn't really think very much about the possibilities of, of TV. Earlier books of mine had been optioned and it had come to nothing. And it, initially it's quite exciting, but you quite quickly get used to the idea that actually 99 times out of 100, nothing, nothing happens. Mm. When the series was optioned, I was very impressed by the people who took the option up. And I had choice at that time. There were a few different companies interested. And I sort of went round them all in, in, in a day and met a, a number of them and went with the people that I thought would do the... The ones who seemed most interested in the books and talking about the characters rather than telling me what stars they bring in and, mm. and, and yeah. that, you know. The, Jamie, who was the, uh, the guy at, um, at uh, Seesaw who I spoke to, he was very, very much um, interested in the books. And so I was quite happy to you know, sort of sign over this possibility to him without necessarily thinking that anything was going to come of it. And, you know, it was eight years before, eight years between the first time I met him and, and the show was, a bit more than eight years, and the show was first um, broadcast. And I think from about halfway through that period, I realised that it probably was going to happen. But it was a good six years in before it was definitely going to happen. And that was re when two things happened. One was when um, a guy called Graham Yost came on board to be the showrunner, and he'd done a lot of stuff. He's very well known in the States. He, uh, his first screen credit was for Speed, you know, which is going back right away. And he did um, Justified and a few other TV shows like that, which were very successful. And the others in the writer's room said to me, it's just gone from being quite likely to being definite. So that, that was great. And then Gary Oldman signed up for it, and after that, you know, this is definitely going to happen. Um, but as to whether I'll change, right? And I haven't been writing about these characters since since the show started, since I first saw the completed um, show. Uh, I've been writing a different book, which will be out later this year. So I'm about to go back to writing about Slow House okay, again yeah. for the first time since seeing right. it. And we'll, mm. I, I don't know. I don't know whether it will affect me. I don't think so. I write to the voices in my head rather than to any image. Um, I mean, even when I put Timothy Spall down on the table, I wasn't thinking about Timothy Spall when I wrote about Lamb. I was thinking about how Lamb sounds in my head. Yeah. And I think that will continue, I hope. So in which case, how, how is that process? You talked about the writer's room. How is that process where it turns from your prose, your words on the page, to this activity on the screen? How much do you have to let go of your characters, your, your exact, how you envisaged it, because it can't, you know, they, they can't read your mind entirely. I don't know how much involvement you have in that writer's room and how much you have to just accept that it is their interpretation of your words. I was fully prepared to you know, step back and surrender all of that and allow all of that to happen because I was pretty sure that, that it would. What surprised me was the, um, the fidelity they've, 
they've shown to the um, uh, to the books, and it's with the tone of the books and with the um, with the characters. The cast are brilliant. I mean, it's such a tremendous cast, and they've all approached these characters, you know, via the books. And so, even if I did start thinking about, say, Saskia Reeves when I'm writing about Catherine Standish, that's not going to affect the way I, I write because she's doing what I do in the books. Um, I thought I'd be surrendering a lot. I thought I would be um, seeing a lot of shortcuts taken and, um, and just kind of surface renditions of, um, of what I write about. Because a lot of what I write is interior. Yeah, um, and, exactly. I, and I thought, well, we're going to lose all of that. Yeah. But of course I'm not, really. I mean, I can write a, a page saying, you know, describing Catherine's inner turmoil at some situation or other. And, and Saskia can do that in a couple of seconds of a close-up, you know, mm. because because she's an experienced actor and, is, and is, um, is tremendous at doing that. And what's really interested me is the way they're bringing stuff, these actors are bringing stuff to the roles which is because of their own character, their own personality. Yeah. Gary Oldman and Jack Loudon, who's doing a wonderful job as playing uh, River Cartwright, get on tremendously well. Um, they formed a real bond. And what the effect this has is that when, uh, there are many scenes which are just the two of them basically <laughs> insulting each other, uh, but they're bringing, a, there's a kind of repressed affection in those yeah. scenes, which yeah. isn't in the yeah. books, and it's not even in the script. It's there because of these two yeah. actors, these two people, the way they, they feel about each other playing these parts. And I found that fascinating. Mm. The bits I'm enjoying most when I watch are the bits that I didn't write, you know, the That's scenes true. that the writers have made up. That, um, that weren't in the books. And I, I love seeing those bits, it's great. Yeah, that's right. Because they've got the tone right, they've got the characters. Mm. That's so, it's so interesting. And when you say um, watching, how much time are you spending when you talk about that affection? Are, are you spending a do you spend much time actually with them and on the set? Uh, I've, I've visited the set uh, a number of times. Um, I spend a lot of time in the writer's room, but not as, long, not as much as the writers. Mm. The last one went on for about six weeks, and um, I was there... Yeah, about six times, um, six. of course. And I uh, always find it great fun. I really, really do enjoy it. And visiting the set is extraordinary as well because there are so many people, there are hundreds of yeah. people involved in making a TV show. It's extraordinary. And, um, and I, feel, I do feel that it's quite separate from, from me. I mean, this is the work of other people that is doing this. Yeah. And it's all sorts of different work. I mean, people are, there are carpenters, there are joiners and electricians, all sorts of stuff like that. Even then moving away from the very the more abstract stuff of just the logistics, the logistics of shooting a television show during the pandemic is just extraordinary. Yeah. And the amount of work that went on is, is just tremendous. It's quite, quite mind-boggling. Actually, I'm glad you mentioned the pandemic because just to, to sort of coming back to bad actors, a lot of writers, I think, have chosen, a lot of writers, a lot of screenwriters have chosen to sort of avoid using the pandemic, talking about sanitizer and masks, and that is very central to this. And I wonder if that was sort of a conscientious choice to, to ground it in that very strange time. I, uh, I, I didn't feel that I had. I thought I'd put references in, but I didn't, didn't deliberately... It, as in, to, so to make people very aware of the pandemic. A lot of people have mm. decided, you know, haven't they, in filming and things, to sort of avoid it altogether, whereas mm. this, this is very much about wearing masks. And uh, the, the, it does... It does come up, mm. yes. I, I started writing this book when we were in the first lockdown. Mm. I just delivered the previous novel the week or so before yep. the first lockdown was, was struck. And I thought when I was writing this that um, by the time it came out, I, either we'd all be dead or it would be, you know, <laughs> it would be over. Um, so I didn't stress it. There's no, 
There's no discussion of lockdown in it. But I think things like masks and, and sanitizer, they're there to stay, really. They're here to stay, really, aren't they? But, and, of course, I suppose the conversation away. about the politicians and how they, d they deal with it um, dominates a lot of the discussion. That comes, yes, yeah, I suppose that comes under the... Uh, the larger political factor. Yeah. <laughs> um, just um, going back then, because I wanted to sort of break away just to discuss um, the sort of relevance of that in there, but the, the um, casting you've, you've talked about, and you said you had this idea of Timothy Spool. Uh, did, did you have anything to do with the casting of these characters in, in, in the TV series? Not at all, no. no. I mean, that's all done at a, a different level. I know nothing about this, this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, there are professionals who are who are there to uh, make these decisions. I've been involved in some early discussions, but I just sit saying, oh, that'd be great, yeah, that'd be wonderful, yeah, lovely. Yeah. I know nothing about it at all. So, I mean, we've talked a lot about the, the, po the politics, but it's important to talk about, the, the, I suppose, the style um, in which you return so much to, to the characters um, and to your familiar characters. Is that something that sort of gives you a, a comfort? A lot of people obviously write a novel, go away and write an entirely separate one with an entirely new setting and a new cast. And I wonder what, what that brings to you as a writer, just returning again and again to familiar scenes and familiar voices. And that. There are, there are um, advantages and, and drawbacks. One of the drawbacks is that you worry that you might simply be repeating the same scenario over and over again. But the, the habit I have of, um, of sidelining characters does mean that I can you know, sort of move people off the page and bring new characters in. I have a kind of revolving door policy at, at Slough House. So I'm able to kind of refresh, <laughs> refresh that quite a lot, which, uh, which I enjoy. Um, I mean, there are advantages in, in the series as well, part of which is that um, the next novel is always kind of hovering there because there's a, the kind of ghost structure is, is already waiting. Because I know who the characters are, I know what they're going to be doing next in terms of their involvements, you know, and I quite enjoy putting them in different pairings. And so all of that sort of thing, I, kn I already know about before I've started thinking about a plot. And the plot is just an excuse to allow what I want to happen to happen. So it's, it's all just a big alibi, really. I, I understand that someone came up to you, approached you not very long ago, and begged you not to do something with a certain character. Is that a familiar experience? It's happened a couple of times uh, lately, yeah. And I should warn you that when people do say to me, please don't kill X or Y, my immediate response is to think, oh, <laughs> I haven't thought of that. I'm glad you said that. The next that. one's going to be a bloodbath, I'm telling you. That's only a question. That is very good warning. No one go up after this to beg you not to kill the character they don't want you to kill. Um, what about more, more generally the, the sort of style of um, spy novel? I mean, you've been compared to so many um, great um, thriller writers. What attracts you to the traditional spy novel? And do you have any, I suppose, people that you admired that inspired you and brought you into that world? I think I was more nervous about entering that world because of the writers that I admire right. who work within it. Yeah. I mean, I'd read Le Carre since I was a teenager. Uh, hugely admire him. I think he's one of the, the great post-war British novelists. Mm. But he's not a writer that I read and thought, oh, I could do that. You, know, you, you read him and you think, blimey, you know, that, that's tremendous stuff. I wouldn't dare try anything like that. So the, um, the approach to the spy novel came about for, for a variety of reasons, more or less accidental. It wasn't 
a burning desire to write a spy novel. It was a desire to write a book with a, with a large cast of characters who would be in the situation that I envisaged for them, you know, the failures who were all brought together um, and made to suffer. And because I'm writing thrillers, it kind of narrows down what world they'd be in. And if I wrote about police officers, then I'd have to know what police officers do. And then we come back to this business of research, you know, and I... <laughs> That's, you know, I, I'm not a writer because I like work. I'm a writer because I like lying around all morning. I'm staring enjoying the ceiling. this honesty about the research. I haven't heard it. So if you write about the Secret Service, you can make us anything up. So that was one of the attractions for it. But also the political element. I mean, you know, the intelligence services are, in a sense, a branch of, of government or very closely linked to government. So it was a way of writing about larger issues, and that, that appealed to me at the time. Yeah. How do you think a sort of modern-day, more global situation affects writing the traditional spy novel? I mean, in a way, it feels like so little has changed in terms of... I mean, there's obviously um, sort of Russian characters in, in, in bad actors, and in so many ways, so, so little has changed when it comes to the Russian spies. Does that make it easier, do you think, to continue writing in the vein of traditional spy novels and keep them relevant to the modern day? For me, the classic spy novel has always existed within the Cold War and was actually, actually written during the Cold War. So the fact that we seem to be edging back into a very similar sort of situation is, you know... I mean, it's obviously bad news for the world, and I'm sorry about that, but for me, it seems like quite a good, good, uh, good idea. Uh, but it's funny, what, what, what doesn't change despite all the, the differences that occur? I mean, mostly, I think, the real world of spying these days... Largely, it's going to be about surveillance, it's going to be about technology, it's going to be about drones and, and um, electronic eavesdropping of one sort or another. But you will always have the human element. I'm sure many of you are listening to the news at um, lunchtime. The, the OG, this um, an individual who has released millions of um, pages of uh, classified information, more or less by accident, it seems, just because he was showing off to his mates in a, in a chat room. Um, but it always comes down to the, the individual, the human who has done this thing. And I write about the humans who do these things, largely stupid things. I'm not sure what's going to happen to this guy when they catch him, which they will very soon, but I think he'd probably wish he's going to end up in Slough House. I think it's going to be a lot worse than that. It's extraordinary you say that. Actually, I think perhaps the last time that we were on this stage, or very recently, I was interviewing Chelsea Manning, which is um, oh, right, yeah. very, very, an interesting um, to, to compare. You say, you've talked a lot about you didn't go into this to work hard, which obviously isn't true because you are bringing out a lot of great, wonderful novels time after time, which I think we all know you can't do without working pretty hard. But talking about the stories today, I mean, are you, are you always watching, consuming um, current affairs and the news and what's happening with an eye to characters, to stories, to novels coming out of that? Not always, but there are periods when I do. I mean, at the moment, I'm thinking about the next book. And it, I do feel during this period, which will go on for... It's been going on for a couple of months, and hopefully it will stop quite soon when I start work. Uh, I am always picking at ideas, sort of everything that I, that I overhear, like listening to the news this afternoon. Part of me is always saying, can I use this? Can I use this? How can I use it? Not just for ideas, but for phrases and, you know, all sorts of stuff that comes in. Once I start writing... A novel. Once I've got, you know, the an idea of what it's going to be about, then I just ignore everything and I just focus on that for the next, you know, 14 months or whatever. But there's that period where I am very aware of of needing information mm. and uh, and I'm very alert to it. It's not conscious. It's not willed, but it is just what happens during this particular 
phase, during the, the pre-writing phase, if, uh, if I can call it that. I'm going to go shortly to audience questions because I, I know that there will be many, but your characters, you, you clearly sort of have got to know them so well and they, they're so brilliantly brought to life in the page. How do you do that? How do you um, get to know your characters, research your characters in your, in your mind, find them? Where do they come from? I find that they only really come to life when I'm actually doing the doing the writing. I mean, when I invent a new character and bring a new character into the series. Because of the nature of the, the situation, you know, I, I know a few things about them, you know, if they're, they're coming in as a, as a slow horse. I know that they've got to screwed up in some way, or, you know, had a very good reason for ending up in Slough House. So that's the starting point. I've got to find out what they've done wrong. And then try and build from there. But it always seems to me at that point that it's all just like I'm ticking boxes of, of one sort or another. But once I start giving them things to say. Once I put them in a room with the other characters and they start talking, that's when they start to feel like they're developing an individual sound to me. And that's, that's when I, I can feel that they're, they're either going to work or not work. So the relationships are so important. It's always about the relationships. It's always about the characters and how they get on or don't get on with each other. I much prefer writing about people not getting on with each other than, than <laughs> doing so. And what about your own sort of procedure? I mean, so many writers have some very specific things they need to do, a very specific place they need to be, a very specific time that they need to make sure they write at each day. Do you have anything like that? I only really write in one place, um, but I, I try not to be too fetishistic about it or, or anything, but I do go to an apartment. I don't have Wi-Fi there, I don't have the internet or anything, so I, I play music and I, I spend most of the day reading, to be honest, and then um, in the intervals I get some writing done. You don't have Where to write many words a day. It's, um, <laughs> it's no, in Oxford. I thought you said the pub. Did you? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a writer who can write in public, no. No, okay. A, a public house or, or any other kind of public. Um, no, I have an, uh, an apartment where I, I used to live. I don't currently live there anymore, but I still go there to work. And, um, yeah, that's where the work gets done. But it doesn't... You don't have to write very much every day, so long as you do it every day, mm. to, to create a book, I find. That's what I keep telling myself. Actually, my publisher is here. I should probably be taking a different note. It's really, really hard work. I start right about six in the morning, carry on until about eight at night, and then I come out and do publicity like this and interviews. And I work I very, very hard all the time. I think your publisher may know that it's okay, <laughs> that they're safe. Um, we've, got, we've got a fair amount of time. I've, got, I've still got more questions. What I'm going to do is go to audience questions now because we've got a lovely full room and um, I know that there, there will be many and then if I get a chance to sneak in some more of mine, I may do that um, in the time. Before we start, can I just say, I did uh, um, uh, something similar to this in New York at the end of last year and the last question we got, I was with Charlie Cummings, spy writer. The last question we got was, uh, what do spy writers eat as snacks? <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> I answered first, so I, I just told the truth. I didn't try to make something up. So I said, well, chunky Kit Kats, mostly. Charlie invented something about eating, I don't know, hawthorn twigs or something like that. <laughs> but it turned out there was somebody in the audience who uh, was in advertising and had the Nestle account. And so <laughs> so I, I've been promised a box of Kit Kats. This hasn't actually turned up yet. It hasn't materialised. So if you have a question to ask, if you could just tell me first what brand you're affiliated with. <laughs> 
I will mould my response accordingly. I, I'm really sorry. I said I wasn't going to be selfish. I'm just going to ask this one more question because um, there's a great deal of sort of humour that comes out just of your descriptions and in many, many ways. And I wonder just how important... There's so much humour, of course, in the novels and th throughout all of it, and these characters, um, you know, make you just smile and laugh. And is, it, that must be very... That's very important to you, the humour. Oh, it is, yes. I mean, I wouldn't want to read a book that didn't have any humour in it. Um, and it's become more so, I think, uh, in the books. Largely of a, a sort of fairly cynical approach, but, um, but that's just the nature of uh, 2023, really. <laughs> oh, I'm so looking forward to seeing what's next. Now I'm sort of going to just think, isn't it going to be writing about that for the, <laughs> for the next book? Right, let's go first to... Um, yeah. Hi, um, I'm a psychologist if you ever need therapy, uh -oh. that's all I can offer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll leave that to others to decide. <laughs> I was, when, when you said that, um, that there's repressed affection that's come about as a result of the relationship between the actors, do you not see Jackson holding any affection to any of the slow horses? Uh, no, I don't, not really. I mean, he feels a certain kind of ownership over them. Um, but if he does feel any actual affection, he hides it quite well, I have to say. <laughs> I was always very determined that I wasn't going to have a, a heart of gold showing through at any point. <laughs> there is a moral code there, and I enjoy sort of poking him until he, he force, he's forced to act on that. But that's not about affection, that's about him doing what he feels is the right thing, even if his version of what the right thing is isn't necessarily commonly held. Interesting. Yes, hi. So the Peter Judd character, you know, bears a remarkable resemblance to Boris Johnson. Mm -hmm. And you, you really get across the sort of, um, the, the calculating nature of that sort of Boris Johnson cartoon persona. So is it right that you were at university sometimes, <laughs> Johnson? Because there just seems to be something amongst all of these characters, there's something really grudgeful about how you write about uh, Peter Judd. Um, it, it's true that our, my, my career at, uh, at college overlapped with um, at least one prime minister. Yeah, but we didn't know each other at all. Um, I certainly didn't mix in those circles. For some reason, the Bullingdon Club wasn't interested in, in inviting me to be... I'd have a lot more to write about if, um, if it had. I, I have no greater insight into um, these people than, than anybody else. I don't think you need a great insight to realise quite how... <laughs> shallow and self-serving, so many of them seem to be these days. Uh, if they're going to be stereotypes, then I'm allowed to write about it. <laughs> That's how I feel. Apart from the subliminal black door, were mm. there any other influences from a childhood in Newcastle that affect your writing? Um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I think that it's impossible for anyone who isn't in therapy, for instance, to really be aware of that kind of um, stuff and how it's operating. I mean, I do know that, obviously, I'm, I'm writing out of various different urges that hang around in the back of my head. Um, I don't really inquire too closely about where they're, where they're coming from. Um, I've not consciously drawn on anything, uh, any of my own sort of childhood background. The one time I wrote about Newcastle upon Tyne, uh, it was in the, um, in the Zoe Bohm series. I sent um, a character there who was not herself a native of the city, so she was visiting it as, as a stranger and seeing it through the eyes of a stranger. 
Because I left when I was 18, and, um, and the city's changed a great deal since then, and I didn't feel like I had the right to pretend I was you know, very, very familiar with it. I still go there a lot. I have family there. My mother's still there. Um, but I didn't... I don't feel like... You know, I, I have... Um, I know Oxford a lot better than I know Newcastle now. I've lived there longer. Um, so I don't think that... Well, I, I suppose the, the answer is in the word subliminal. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's very sub. You know, it's, it's probably going on, but um, I, don't, uh, I don't explore it very much. Hi. One of the things I love about books was the descriptions, and they reminded me of the way Dickens describes interiors. Was there any influence? or it, I was thinking of the description of Dawn and the, the way that the light follows at the beginning of a book and at the end of a book. I think I get asked something along these lines every time I do uh, an, an event, which pleases me, actually. I mean, I do think that um, it, it is conscious, it is deliberate. Uh, when I wrote Slow Horses, the first in the series, I deliberately lent on uh, the opening of Bleak House mm -hmm. as a way of getting into Sound House itself and of kind of moving around it. And I've done something similar in, in each of the introductions ever since. So it all goes back to, to Dickens. Most of what writers want to do I think, is, is find their own voice and know that, they're, um, that they've... Obviously, there are all sorts of influences at work, conscious and unconscious, but out of those, you want to mould something that you feel belongs to you and is yours alone. Uh, but when it comes to writing about London, specifically, there's no way you can avoid the influence of, of Dickens because Dickens is in London and, and vice versa. You know, the two are just so much part of the same... Uh, continuum that, um, that it's inevitable. With me, it was conscious and deliberate, but uh, even if I weren't, even if I was um, relying on unconscious influences, writing about London, Dickens is going to be there. Yeah. In Dolphin Junction, the story between Lamb and Molly Duran, which goes into Lamb's uh, previous life, I always find the pair of them, the dialogue just zings off one to the other, would you try and bring more um, stories involving those pair together, and how? Because obviously Molly's buried deep in the ground at um, MI5. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I've always said that I'm very um, uh, wedded to writing about uh, the contemporary, because uh, this is where I get, I don't want to call it inspiration, that's some kind of nourishment of writing what is going on now and uh, writing about the present day. So I wouldn't, and also, as we've established over and over again, I don't do research, I don't want to do too much work. You know, and uh, writing anything said in the past would require that kind of work. And so I would have to come up with something really clever in order to be able to do both those things. I have a new book out later this year. You might want to check it out. <laughs> oh, hi. Uh, do you know how many more books there are going to be in the series? And do you know how it's going to end? I can answer no to both of those things. I, my next book will be a Slow House book, and I'm sure there'll be one after that. But uh, I don't... Um, I'm only saying that because my publisher is here. Um, <laughs> I don't have any uh, grand plan. I've never had a plan of any sort, really. I mean... Uh, doing anything, you know? I mean, even finding Conway Hall, was, I was pretty impressed that I managed to do that, to be honest. Uh, so no, I, I never look beyond the, the book I'm working on. 
at most, I'll have half an idea by the time I'm approaching the end of the book I'm working on. So, um, you know, ask me again in a year and we'll, we'll find out. <laughs> do, you, do you know the endings before, do you, before you begin? More or less. I know the, the, vague, the vague destination I know, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, sort of tying into the endings, I suppose, with regards to the revolving door of Slough House and the characters, um, do you know before you begin a book that a character is going to be sidelined? Do you, hmm. Does it happen organically or do you kind of think, oh, I've, I've told your story now, so this book you'd better shuffle off? <laughs> oh, good question. I do, I do like to write organically and mostly the plots do develop in that way. But if a character is going to die, I know beforehand. I never take that lightly. I wouldn't sideline a character um, just because I thought the book needed some more energy, you know, or needed a dramatic event. When I start writing a book, I'll have some of the information needed for it. There'll be various plot points and a destination, and I will know what they are. If a character is going to die, then that is definitely there before I start. I don't really have a visual imagination. I'm mostly um, about words on the page. But uh, when I started writing Joe Country, it came with a, with a visual uh, image, uh, which is unusual for me, a very Chaucerian one. And it was a, a snow-covered field with a tree in it and a character lying under the tree. And I knew who that character was, and I knew that they were dead. So plotting Joe Country was a matter of getting to that point. And everything that happens was just a kind of excuse to arrive at that moment and then find out what happened afterwards. Um, so no, the, the deaths of characters um, are very important to me and I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't trivialize them and I, you know, I don't just do it at a, on the spur of the moment. It's always because it feels necessary to me, because it's part of the, um, the, uh, the impulse to write the book in question. So you said that you don't have Wi-Fi in where you write, and I wonder, have you been hacked, and do you feel that you were under surveillance? Is that why you don't have <laughs> <laughs> No, it's, um, it's largely to avoid distraction. When I started um, writing, so when I started writing a series, um, I was a commuter. I was very time poor, and uh, I do find that the Internet is a huge thief of time. Um, so I deliberately avoided using it. I don't do social media, largely because write, you know, any kind of blogging or even writing a tweet for me would be using up creative energy that I'd rather spend on writing a book. Um, so that's, that's why I, I didn't do it. I have more time now, I suppose, but I have no interest in, uh, in joining, in the, um, joining in the conversation, which seems to me more like joining in feeding time at a zoo, mostly. So... Um, yeah, it, it's not because I'm avoiding surveillance, but you know, <laughs> I, I would say that, wouldn't I? No, <laughs> I think we could all take, well, I certainly could take a leaf out of that productivity book in terms of not being on the internet when you're meant to be working. Hello, if you had to invo invite one of your Slough House characters out to dinner, who would you two choose and why? Oh. It would have to be Roddy, I think. <laughs> <laughs> because. I don't always like making a, a, a social effort, and I feel that with Roddy, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have to, you know, you could just kind of sit back and allow him to shine. And, uh, I was asked last night if, uh, if I thought Roddy Ho would ever find true love, and I said, well, he already has, it just doesn't involve anybody else. <laughs> Did 
Do you think Slough House could exist in any other country? Um, I used to always think, no, I just made it up. But the more I think about it, the more it seems quite likely, I guess. Um, I do know that um, in one of these states in... I think it's in Connecticut, there's something very similar for teachers. Teachers who turn out to be not very good at their jobs get reassigned to this place where they don't actually have any teaching duties, but they have to turn up every day and stay there all day. Um, and I'm, I'm surprised that this kind of thing doesn't happen. I mean, that's because they're, they're um, uh, civil servants of one sort or another. It's very difficult to, uh, to sack a civil servant. So that was the approach that the, uh, the teaching authorities took there. I've often thought that the main implausibility of, of Slough House is that my experience of, of large organisations, both ones that I've worked for and ones that I've had any kind of dealings with, is that if they happened to have a department that was made up of people who were rubbish at their job, it would very quickly become the biggest department in the organisation. <laughs> so the, the trouble with Slough House is there are half enough people in it. <laughs> Hello there. Uh, you've just answered my question, really. Someone in the civil service for 35 years. Uh, but, uh, no, really. Uh, to be honest, I feel a bit of a fraud because we've kind of uh, got your name from the Apple Plus series, which I thought was terrific. Uh, and we've actually ordered a book on Amazon. Is it worth buying? That's the first question, I suppose. And secondly, what do you think about that series? Because we think it's terrific, especially Gary Oldman and the cast. And even Roddy's good. Yeah, cheers. Thank you. Thank you. So was that terrific or horrific? I didn't quite catch that. But I've, been, um, I've been thrilled by it. Yeah, I've been thoroughly enjoying it. And uh, I might even get Apple, actually, at, at some point. <laughs> I've, uh, I've only seen it... Um, I've seen each show, well, mostly once, um, at a preview that, uh, that we were invited to before they started streaming it. Um, so I haven't seen it in ages, actually. I'm looking forward to seeing the new one, which I'll see soon. I couldn't be happier with it. I mean, I think they're doing a great job. I also am very pleased that, in a way, it's taking its own wing. Um, now that the actors are really sort of taking ownership of the characters that they play, it's, um, it allows for um, differences to, to be made between the books and the shows. And as I said before, the bits that I enjoy most are the bits that the writers are, are making up, you know, that are, that are new to me. I really enjoy that. Sorry, did I answer both parts of that? What was the first part of the question again? <laughs> yeah, is it is it worth buying a book? I think he's. Oh, sorry, is it worth buying a book? Which is the most interesting question. I, <laughs> I missed that bit entirely. Yeah. I wonder is why. It, <laughs> I should have. Yeah, I should have asked you. Is it worth buying? Um, well, again, my publisher is here. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, but I mean, they look really good on the shelf. You don't have to read them. They've got lovely covers at the moment. <laughs> the spines are very, very brightly coloured, so they they would look good anywhere. So yeah, yeah, buy them, but don't feel you have to read them. <laughs> All of your characters are fully formed with their backstories at the beginning of the first book. Now that you're several books in, do you regret any of those personality decisions? For example, do you wish that Jackson Lamb didn't fart so much? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm very glad I put that in. Uh, Raymond, Raymond Chandler used to say, when in doubt, have a man come through the door with a gun. Well, I'm in doubt, I just have Jackson Lamb fart, and that does the same kind of job for me. Uh, no, I'm... Um, I'm glad I did that work, uh, and I hadn't realised at the time I was writing it that I was starting a series, I was just writing a book. But I think, 
and again, we're going to use the word subliminal here, um, I think at some part of me knew that that was going to happen because I put far more work into those characters than the single novel would have required, uh, given that some of the stuff that's there isn't really... Get, gets called, called upon in later novels, but isn't you know, called upon within Slow Horses itself. So I think I probably knew I was working on a, on a series. And I think that um, putting that amount of work into the characters and ones I've introduced since is, um, is part of what readers enjoy, um, that they have that kind of... Uh, the depth to them and uh, quite a lot of... Um, quite a lot of nonsense. I mean, they've, they've all done some really quite stupid stuff, which is one of the great bits about inventing characters who are going to be in Slough House, is just working out quite how stupid they're going to have been in the past. I enjoy that. Um, you talked about um, writing, having an organic approach to writing. Does that, in terms of preparation, does that mean it's literally all in your head, or is there anything you write down before you start, or what sort of structure or outline, if anything, do you work to in advance? I have, I have notebooks that are not very coherent, but I will try and write out something approximating to a plan before I start work. And then I don't look at it again, which is a mistake I've found. <laughs> um, the, the one book I wrote that I did plot out quite minutely uh, was the standalone novel, This Is What Happened. And I knew that was divided into sort of five parts, each of which was divided in two, so that makes ten. I do the maths. And I plotted out the first eight of those and allowed the ending to be more organic. And that was the easiest book to write that I've ever uh, attempted. And you'd think I'd have learned from that, wouldn't you? And done something similar since. But what I found is that uh, with that book, it was, it was much simpler to do that kind of planning because there are only three characters in it, really. And given that I'm dealing with about a dozen or so in the series, and a lot of the, the organic stuff is suddenly realising, oh, I haven't mentioned X or Y for a while, and we've got to find out what they're doing and where they are. Um, I would find that difficult to do as a plan. And also, I think, if I wrote a plan that detailed, I think the writing would become inert. It would simply be a matter of kind of doing that scene now, and then that scene, and then that scene, according to something that I decided beforehand. Making it up not quite on the spur of the moment, but, you know, as I'm doing the writing, makes it feel fresher to me, so I hope that that communicates itself to the reader. Uh, you've talked about the uh, fun of writing incompetent characters. Obviously, a lot of the slow horses are pretty incompetent and failures, uh, but the, I guess the demands of writing a plot mean that they do actually sometimes succeed and solve cases. How do you think about and manage that tension between their incompetence and their success? I think you put your finger on one of the real flaws in the whole series. <laughs> I look at it in the way that, that I'm sure Enid Blyton probably did when she was writing the famous Five stuff. You know, thought, this is the 18th time these guys have found smugglers on their summer holidays. <laughs> is that going to work? Oh, the kids won't mind. So it is true that, you know, I'm writing about people who, because of the, you know, the, the genre that I'm working in, do get involved in, in uh, busy activity, despite the fact that they're supposed to be stuck at their desks all day long. And also, they're supposed to be incompetent, but they do occasionally, more often than not, probably, 
save the day. Um, but, but not always. I do have them going massively wrong on, on occasion. It's a, it's a bit of a balancing act. And it does give me uh, the, uh, an out, really. You know, I can have you know, a difficult situation arise, and they're just not able to do anything about it, so it happens anyway, um, rather than me having to think of something really clever to resolve it. Uh, you seem very relaxed in your writing. Is there a period of time you were of angst and found it difficult? Um, the one time that I had difficulty writing was the first novel that I started to write after I was writing full-time. Uh, when I gave up the day job, um, I was halfway through a book, and uh, I just continued working on the same book, and that was all, all fine. When I came to starting again, I realized that what I no longer had as part of my routine was the, uh, the time that I'd spent going to work, getting on a train every morning and getting a train back home every evening. I didn't work on the train, but I used to think about the work. And I used to know by the time I sat down at my desk uh, what I was going to be writing about. I found that when I started writing without that, that kind of buffer, as it were, um, I was a bit more tied up in, oh, I've got all this time, I should be writing at least twice as much as I was before. And I started to over-focus on that idea of productivity, which meant that I threw a lot away. I realized after quite a, a short amount of time that I was just writing to, to, full, to fill a page, uh, when what I really should be doing is going for a walk or lying on the sofa uh, <laughs> and, and having another Kit Kat. So I threw a lot of stuff away, and then I adjusted my habits, so I, I do a lot of what doesn't look like work from the outside, <laughs> uh, but is, obviously. I mean, if I was under surveillance, <laughs> I would probably be tagged as maybe a, a full-time solitaire player <laughs> who occasionally dabbled in a bit of creative writing when, when not having a nap. So, yeah, I hope, it, I hope it comes across as relaxed. I do feel, <laughs> feel quite relaxed most of the time, I have to say. Any <laughs> more time for one more? Yeah. Uh, you mentioned before that the, the very important thing for a writer is to find their own voice. Mm. So beyond public praise, was there a moment when you realised that you found, you found your own? I think it came... Um, Without, without any public praise being attached, um, when I was writing Slow Horses, I think that was the point at which I thought that I'd found the right kind of topic to be writing about and the tone of voice that I wanted to use to write it. And I can't really be any more specific than that. It just felt, perhaps for the first time, that I was, I was writing the right book, um, that everything was kind of working in the way that I wanted it to. Uh, which didn't result in immediate success or, um, or, or huge readership or anything. But I felt very comfortable about it, uh, and that made a, a big difference to me. I felt much more confident from that point onwards. Well, I said at the start it was a treat to have just an hour or so to delve into your mind. It, it really was. Um, I love how you sort of keep trying to tell us that you didn't get into this to work. I've just been counting up, yes, 19 <laughs> books and the so <laughs> 20th coming out. That doesn't sound like no work to me or I'm sure to the rest of us. But um, as I said, thank you all very much for coming. Thank you for your brilliant questions. Mick, thank you so much thank indeed. You. For thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. This episode starred Mick Heron and Hannah McInnes. It was produced by Esme Bright and Nicole Wong. 
The show is made by Esme and myself, and our editor is John Doughty. If you're in London, you can join us for conversations just like this one. Next month, we've got Ruby Wax, Alistair Campbell, James Comey, and many more guests besides. You can find the programme at howtoacademy.com. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>